Welcome to Sound Philosophy, a podcast concerning philosophical and interpretive issues in the history of popular music. In today's episode, we discuss issues of form in popular music, especially as they're expressed in a form of music that seems to concern itself with form, and that is progressive rock. Thank you for joining me. Enjoy. notion of form means, it obviously must include the relatively banal sense in which we use the term form on a regular basis. And that should be relatively easy to discuss, right? I mean, we use the term form in discussing music all the time. We might feel that some of us are more attuned to the niceties of form than others, but in general, most avid listeners to popular music have no trouble discerning verses from choruses from bridges. Most of us recognize that there's some kind of implicit cyclical nature to these formal structures. In a verse-chorus structure, we expect the pattern to basically be verse-chorus, verse-chorus. The bridge adds some variability, but we usually imagine we'll get something like verse-chorus, verse-chorus, bridge-chorus, or some variation thereof. These formal elements don't seem all that difficult or surprising, and they certainly don't seem to require the hefty thought of Kant to explain them. But then ambiguities proliferate. We might, for example, argue about the status of a phrase in a piece of music. What I mean is this. What makes a phrase a phrase? We think of a musical phrase as a relatively complete musical thought that ends with some kind of musical punctuation, what we call a cadence. Now, that might be a relatively strong cadence, a musical equivalent to a period in written prose, or it might be a relatively weak cadence, more like a semicolon or a comma in prose. But of course, we also say that a 12-bar blues has three phrases, each four measures long. But there's only one actual cadence, and that's at the end of the third phrase. The first phrase doesn't necessarily have any harmonic motion at all. It can, and often is, just a reiteration of the tonic chord, or a prolongation of the tonic chord. So one chord for the whole phrase, no harmonic punctuation of any sort. Now that raises the question as to whether or not there's punctuation of another sort. Can there be melodic punctuation that creates a sense of phrase that counteracts the stasis of harmony that would seem to deny the musical passage the status of a phrase? The point here is that the notion of a phrase, which seems so very foundational and basic, is actually a quite slippery concept in music. Someone committed to the notion of a phrase being completed by a cadence will say that 12-bar blues is just one phrase. There's no, only one cadence. Most of us who discuss the blues seem to have no problem describing and hearing the 12-bar form as comprising three phrases, often in the pattern A-A-B. And indeed, perhaps it's because there's a logic of repetition there and, and contrast at play, and so therefore we're willing to hear this as three phrases, A, A, B. The repetition of the A makes a difference. So maybe we need Kant or some other thoroughgoing way of thinking about form after all. Maybe it's not all just verses and choruses and bridges, even when on the surface that's precisely what appears to be the case. Let's hold off on Kant a bit longer and just ask in a general way, what is form? We might say that form is just the manner in which the parts make up the whole. Verses and choruses and a bridge are assembled to create a song. But we've already seen that defining parts is not as simple as it might appear. And once we recognize that the parts are not just empty blocks, but have differing functions and musical trajectories, things get complicated pretty quickly. It matters, for instance, that different sections have different relations to openness and closedness. What I mean is, a part, say a chorus, might be, and often is, a self-standing unit. It could almost function as a mini-song in its own right. Indeed, that's exactly what happens in a jazz standard, right? Most of the time, people just play the refrain over and over again. They leave the verses out altogether. A bridge is usually not self-standing, and, of course, there are degrees of closedness and, and openness. One chorus might be more thoroughly closed than another, and that should matter. 
It should be part of the meaning of the song, and it is a manner of meaning contributed by form. So form does something. And therefore, we need a definition of form that doesn't treat the parts as empty boxes. We're interested in how the parts come together to fashion the whole and how the whole is situated to define its parts. This is importantly circular, what we might call a virtuous instead of a vicious cycle or circle. We understand the whole insofar as it's constructed of parts, but the parts are what they are by being subsumed within a whole. That would suggest that at its heart, form is a principle of holding together, a unifying principle, not a concept, not a set of rules, at least not rules that can simply be stated and followed. Form is a kind of regulative principle, to put it in Kantian terms, by listening to and composing a lot of music, one gets a feeling for the possibilities inherent in form. That's what we mean here. That's part of what Kant means by regulative principle, that it's not something that we can lay out as a set of rules. We get a feeling or we get an understanding of the possibilities of the thing, in this case, of form. We will see the Kant's solution to all of this. We'll, we'll, we will see that solution in the next segment, but let's continue on now with the possibilities of the formative principle for popular music by comparing it in a broad sense with classical music. We tend to think of classical music as being more complex formally than popular music. Now, there are two issues here. First, why is it that we celebrate complexity over simplicity? Notice, by the way, based on our discussions in earlier episodes, this is not what Kant does. Right? He's interested in a kind of simplicity and a kind of complexity, both being worked out in the same beautiful object, or in our engagement with that object. We'll discuss this a bit more in the next segment, but to anticipate just a bit, here's the payoff. Right? There are two sides to Kant's understanding of form. On the one hand, there is the unifying aspect of form. The formative element is that which brings unity out of the manifold, out of the parts of the beautiful object, so that it stands before us in a kind of shining oneness, a resplendent simplicity. On the other hand, there is the part of form uh, in the beautiful object that points away from itself toward endless and indeterminable possibility. And this is why Kant says that the beautiful object involves an indeterminate concept. We talked about this a bit with the Joni Mitchell episode, right? This is a seeming contradiction in terms, indeterminate concept, since concepts determine the objects subsumed under them, determine them in a specific way. But what I take Kant to mean here is that the artwork gestures toward a concept that can never truly be realized for two reasons. First, because concepts apply to general classes of things, to groups of things, squirrels as such, not just one squirrel. And that is not the case with the beautiful object, which stands primarily in its particularity. It stands primarily in and for itself. The second reason that the beautiful object gestures toward a concept that can never be fully realized is that while the beautiful object is one thing in the strict sense and thus seemingly capable of falling under a concept, in another sense, it's many things. It gives rise to many possibilities or potentialities. This is why we can never properly describe something we find beautiful. It always points toward possibilities we can't realize in our descriptions. There's always a surplus. There's always more. We simply can't say it all. Okay, we'll return to this soon. But that's the first issue with complexity, that we ought not to only privilege the complex, and indeed Kant doesn't. He suggests that the beautiful object, or the artwork, manages to exude both the simple and the complex in a particular and intriguing manner. The second issue with considering classical music more complex than popular music is this. Where exactly are we finding the complexity? One might say, well, there are more chords and more distant harmonic relationships in a Mozart sonata than in a Black Sabbath song. And I suppose that's true. But is that the proper place to look for complexity in Black Sabbath? One way of thinking about this might be to consider the distinction between so-called extensional form and intentional form. Intentional here doesn't mean that I do it on purpose. It's intentional with an S, I-N-T-E-N-S-I-O-N-A-L, right? So extensional versus intentional form. This distinction comes to me from a short article by Andrew Chester titled Second Thoughts on a Rock Aesthetic, the band, meaning the band here being the band, named the band, and that's the, he's using that as his main example. This was published in the New Left Review, a journal, in, in 1970. 
The terms may have originally been applied to music by Richard Mabley, a, a book that uh, Chester discusses, an author Chester discusses, but I'm unsure of that. I have no access to that book. So I'm relying on the Chester article. Ultimately, this article, uh, the, the second thoughts, is a response to Richard Merton's comments on his earlier article, which was really a review article in which Chester examines uh, a bunch of then-recent publications on popular music, and that one was just titled For a Rock Aesthetic, also in the New Left Review. And that's a British Marxist journal covering politics, economics, and culture. It was originally edited by the famous Marxist and cultural theorist Stuart Hall. So the writing is, at times, a bit dense, maybe even mannered. But it's still worth having to go at it, and I'll include a link on my website if you want to read the original uh, on a post related to this episode. You should take a look at it if, if you have a mind to. But meanwhile, I'll summarize the little bit of it that we need. Chester claims that Western classical music is the epitome of extensional form in that it builds, as he puts it, diachronically and synchronically, which more or less means horizontally, one thing after another, and vertically, one thing on top of another. He says that, that extensional form builds, quote, outwards from basic musical atoms, right, basic musical parts. He maintains that there is relatively little room for interpretation of scores in classical music. We should, of course, feel free to disagree with him here, but that's what he says. Rather, the point of extensional form is that it takes relatively precise and simple building blocks and creates complexity out of arranging those blocks in various ways. So an extensional form, or better, a form that emphasizes its extensional qualities, will offer striking, differentiated sections that nevertheless cohere in some rigorous manner. Think of a sonata form in Beethoven, or theme and variations in Mahler, or the Passacalli or Chacon, or Fugue in Bach, just as particularly rich examples. Now, Chester associates rock with non-Western musics in the pursuit of the intentional development of form. Again, I don't mean intentional as in not accidental. What he means is kind of something that is intensive. He writes, quote, In this mode of construction, the basic musical units played in sung notes are not combined through space and time as simple elements into complex structures. The simple entity is, is that constituted by the parameters of melody, harmony, and beat, while the complex is built up by modulation of the basic notes and by the inflection of the basic beat, end quote. Now, this is admittedly muddy. I told you, the writing's not always super clear. I take it to mean this. I take it to mean that melody, harmony, and rhythm are, in comparison to classical music, according to, to Chester, uh, relatively simple in popular music, and that popular music is far more flexible with respect to what is done with those notes and those rhythms. In short, I take Chester to mean that while a classical violinist is relatively restricted to playing more or less a strict version of the printed score, and the complexity comes from the variety of parts within the form, a rock or blues guitarist plays with the timing and the inflection of notes. Think of a blues guitarist and, and phrasing, right? B.B. King bends notes just slightly out of tune, and that's part of the expression. He lays behind the beat and occasionally just ahead of it. Right? He's not right on the beat. These, are, these subtleties are the complexity of his approach, and they're, they're part of what makes him a great expressive guitarist, and yet a very different guitarist from, say, other great blues guitarists who do the same kind of thing but in their own way. Right? Blind Blake, for instance, is one of my favorites. Now, let me state for the record, I think Chester's comparison between classical music and rock music is flawed in the extreme. A good classical violinist is not a walking metronome, and there are several styles of rock, including obviously progressive rock, which we're going to talk about today, that delve into the complexities of the extensional. That's the whole reason we're bothering with this dichotomy at all in this episode, to help explain progressive rock. So think about James Brown. Let's, uh, let's, uh, we, we need a way of, uh, of, of exemplifying uh, matters that work a little better than what Chester does. So uh, I think there's a, there's a point here that, that is potentially fascinating. I just don't think he does it very well. So let's think about James Brown, right? We should all think about James Brown a lot. There's a lot to get from that. Think about Papa's Got a Brand New Bag. Most of the song is just a blues progression. If we want to divide it into verses and choruses, then the chorus is just the last phrase of the 12-bar blues, the last four measures. 
It might even be silly to divide it in that way because it's just really a rotation of courses of the blues other than some interludes that just stay on the tonic. So there's little sectional variety to be found here. Why isn't it boring as hell? Some people would say because you dance to it. I don't dance. We don't have to go into the details. It's pretty embarrassing to watch me try to dance. Don't ask. But I love James Brown and I love this song. I love the eight and a half minute version of it on James Brown plays James Brown today and yesterday. If you don't know that version, check it out. I never get bored. Why? Well, intentional form might be a way of explaining why I don't get bored. If I'm looking for contrasting sections, this is not the song. But if I'm looking for subtlety of approaches to the beat, to improvisation, to a groove and the depth of feeling in that groove. If I'm looking for a 4-4 meter that feels alive with implication and a wide variety of emphases and points of gravity that are relatively difficult to articulate in words, well, this song then, it's an embarrassment of Richards. It's inexhaustible. At one point, Chester describes the difference between extensional qualities of form and intentional qualities as the difference between building outwards and building inwards. I think this is revealing and important. The extensional creates variety primarily from sectional contrast. The intentional, or, or motivic contrast, the intentional creates variety from subtle internal variation of the relatively simple external structure. I think of this as the two basic ways to treat form. The extensional can be thought of as trekking, going on a journey, moving across an expansive landscape with its varied terrain and new, perhaps surprising, external sights. The intentional is more akin to dwelling, staying within a space or an atmosphere, and the subtle changes in inflection lead not to new external sights, but rather new internal insights, new revelations about the place you're occupying. So not surprisingly, form arises not just from a concatenation of parts in a horizontal line, but rather from a certain way of occupying space and time, trekking or dwelling. Most music has elements of both, but will emphasize one over the other. Now, one thing I find interesting about prog rock, progressive rock, is its manner of trekking and at times dwelling, particularly when it shows its greatest debt to classical music. We'll turn to that in the third segment, but first, let's take a brief foray into some Kantian concerns with form. this discussion to be brief and targeted. I'm interested in Kant's notion of form. And of course, there's an entire book, The Third Critique, that deals with form in all sorts of ways. So we're going to come back to this issue in, in future episodes, obviously. It, it, it's a huge one in, in Kantian thought. But I want to target a few aspects of Kant's thought regarding form or what he sometimes calls mere form for today's discussion, things that I think will illuminate aspects of progressive rock, which, of course, we're going to start talking about now in greater detail and then in even more detail in the third segment. Kant really wants to focus our attention on form, the aesthetic experience, the reflective judgment for Kant, at least as far as the aesthetic reflective judgment goes. It involves form for him. And that means that it has to bracket off a lot of other things. One of the things it has to bracket off is charm. Uh, 
<laughs> it's not that charm's not involved in art, right? We listen to uh, a, a string quartet in part for the, the beautiful sounds. But to Kant, to some extent, that disturbs, in his own words, it disturbs the beautiful form. It distracts us from it. It's not that it's not important. It's that it's not part of the aesthetic reflective judgment because it appeals directly to the senses as such, not judgment, right? We just luxuriate in those timbres. Now, some types of music have a relatively restricted timbral uh, component, right? And so, especially in, in some kinds of, for instance, piano music, the timbre is not lush. There, there are exceptions to this. Of course, Debussy uses the pedal in certain ways in order to, to give more timbral variety. But think about Bach, played without a pedal, played in a very sort of stark manner. It focuses you in on the form. Too much pedaling and you're distracted from the intricacies of the, the formal elements of the fugue, for instance. I would say the same thing applies to the timbres in Prague rock, right? Think about the tone of John Anderson's voice in Yes, right? The lead singer for Yes. There's something almost bell-like. It's not particularly beautiful. It's not, it's, not, it's not a bad sound, right? There's something kind of pure about it. But it's not an engaging sound in the way that, that one might find certain blues singers or certain other rock singers, uh, to have in their in their vocal production, there's something kind of purest in in John Anderson's tone that what that seems to me to be doing, and the same applies to say Steve Howe's guitar playing and and uh, and and his tone and the, and and the same thing with Steve Hackett and and Genesis and and several of the other uh, performers that that are part of prog rock is that they're involving you in the intricacies of form by having a relatively restricted timbral palette. Or if you don't like the idea that it's restricted, a relatively focused timbral palette, right? They draw you into the contours of form. There are exceptions, of course. Um, I guess uh, Robert Fripp uh, stands out to me as an exception there. But by and large, I feel like progressive rock brings you into form with its timbre rather than distracting you from form. So there's a Kantian element. Now, aesthetic judgment also isn't that concerned with what a thing is, right? For Kant, if we're having a true experience of a painting, we're not sitting there thinking, oh, that's a painting. We're also not thinking, oh, that's an example of Impressionism. That's an example of Cubism. That might be part of the appreciation of art because the appreciation of art involves more than just an aesthetic experience. But if I'm really involved in the particularity of this Monet painting, then my experience of it should be absorptive, in essence. That I'm not sitting there categorizing the painting or thinking about, is this late Monet or early Monet? Is this Impressionism? Is this veering away from that? Is it almost post-Impressionist in some fashion? Whatever that might mean. I'm not doing all that categorizing. I'm absorbed in the engagement, not even the experience. And I, I know I've made a distinction between those terms in the Joni Mitchell episode, and I, I want to do that again. That there's a distinction. Martin Buber draws, draws our attention in I and Thou to this distinction. There's a distinction between experience, where things get cataloged in a certain way, that I feel like I have a full grasp on the thing I've experienced. I can say to someone, are you experienced in the Hendrix manner? And engagement. Engagement is a kind of openness. It doesn't think that it has all the answers or that it can characterize anything. It's an openness to possibility. And Kant seems to me to be bringing us into an aesthetics of engagement, not an aesthetics of experience. And so I'm not concerned precisely with what the thing is. I'm allowing myself to be open to possibility. Prog rock seems to play into that quite a bit, right? Think of the obscurity of the subject matter in a lot of the lyrics of prog rock, or even the obscurity of form. One of my favorite examples, and one we're going to talk about more in the next episode, is Supper's Ready by Genesis, where you, you have this sort of sweet-like form, or Tarkus by Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, or Close to the Edge. These are the three big examples I'll be talking about next time in the next episode, um, where we talk about aesthetic ideas and, and the Kantian notion of genius. Right? Well, those three examples are all sweet-like, 
in various ways. And you have to ask yourself, well, how do the various parts cohere? It's not given in the way that a verse-chorus structure might be. It's not rote. It's not categorizable in the same way. We might be able to describe it, but description is not necessarily categorizing. So there's an obscurity that lies at the heart of form and of, of concatenation, putting one section next to the other in, in uh, prog rock, as well as the lyrics, as well as the genre itself. There's a kind of obscurity to the genre because it is such a hybrid genre. It's not merely rock plus classical or rock plus jazz or rock plus elements of, 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 um, uh, of Asian music, for instance, or of, of world musics, right? The, the hybridity of it brings a kind of obscurity that, that creates an openness toward possibility rather than categorization. So form for Kant involves a studied manner. He says that you learn aspects of form or of formine in the schools. That there is an element here that you're borrowing from others, and yet there's also an element that, that opens you up to possibility. Now we can see both of those in prog rock, right? Uh, think of something we're going to talk about a lot in the next segment, the, the borrowing of studied forms from classical music in prog rock, the fugues, the allusions to sonata form, uh, the, the borrowings from orchestral suites, the making of albums into coherent, uh, well, seemingly coherent holes, right? So the albums become forms in themselves. There's a concern here with the studied in prog rock, which is why some critics don't particularly like prog rock. They feel that it's too studied, that it's, and we'll talk about this a lot in the next episode, that it's betraying the uh, the the sort of gutter glamour, as as Lester Banks puts it, I don't remember exactly how he puts it. We'll look at that more in the next episode of rock. That is a betrayal of that. So there's a studied aspect of form, and in that sense, there are, are sort of formal expectations, like we said, with with uh, verse and chorus and so on. But here, prog rock is trying to move beyond those, borrowing from other formal expectations, and therefore muddying the waters to some extent. Right now. We have to be clear about something. Form for Kant is not just external shape. Indeed, if that were the case, then one would have a measure for beauty. You'd, you'd have perfection, right? You'd, uh, how well does it deal with the external shape? How well does it polish that shape? And that would not be an aesthetic judgment for Kant. Now, don't get me wrong. We do judge art with respect to perfection of both external and internal and teleological form, but those judgments are not aesthetic, we do a lot of things when we're judging art. Not all of that is aesthetic judgment. We judge things in multiple ways. So when we look at a painting of a duck, we might want to regard it as how well it represents a duck. So, for instance, when we're talking about Winslow Homer's left and right, we might say, well, this is a pretty good representation of a golden-eyed duck, right? But that's not the aesthetic part of the judgment. It's not just the coherence of the parts. That's why Kant says that symmetry is a constraint on aesthetic, uh, aesthetic judgment, right? And that we don't want constraint. So the dynamics of form for Kant have to do with the openness to possibilities. That's what constitutes the beauty of the form. This is why it can never be about perfection of form. It can never be about, uh, 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 about just getting the form just right, right? Because there's potentiality involved. And this is a step beyond constraint. It's understanding that needs regularity. Right? It's understanding that needs to follow the rules in that sense, or to, to see that things follow rules. But imagination needs freedom. So think of those two faculties, understanding and imagination. It's both having different needs. Understanding needs regularity. It needs to look at a cat, a whole bunch of different cats, see the regularities that make them all cats. Imagination needs freedom. It needs to contemplate potentiality. So beauty results from the deferral of definiteness. It need, it, it, this is why the, the notion of a concept is so tricky with art. Because art seems to apply, uh, beauty in general, seems to appeal to a concept that is an indeterminate concept, which as we said before, we said this in the Journey Mitchell episode, that seems to be a contradiction in terms. So how does it work? Let's hold that off for just a second. The aesthetic object appeals then to a concept, but not exactly a determinate concept. It appeals to a concept in general. 
This is why it's mere form, right? Remember what concepts in general are. Quality, quantity, modality, and relation. Those are the things that apply to any something in the world. Now, we might say that they're so general that they're uninteresting, but in an aesthetic reflective judgment, those things that seem so general as to be uninteresting become very interesting because we're dealing with this particular. We're dealing with something that appeals to our imagination. It appeals to us as something that we experience, that we engage, better yet, that we engage with, right? So it's not a determinative concept because we're not saying of it that it's this type of thing. We aren't having an aesthetic experience if we just say this is a painting. Hence, it has mere form, almost a kind of purity of form, not form subordinated to purpose or genus or whatever, form that shows up, that shines forth in its own right. It's regarded as purposive, as having a purpose, and yet not having a purpose, it, it, right? That it, it, that it is purposive without a purpose. That was one of Kant's definitions of how aesthetic judgment works in general, right? How, how beauty works in general. And it has this sense of purposiveness because it displays form, but it has it, it lacks purpose because we can't put it on subsume it within a determinate concept. So strictly speaking, what we're dealing with is not the phenomenal form. We're not dealing with the object as such. Rather, we're dealing with the form of representation, our representation. The object matters insofar as it involves us, as it engages us. So it eludes a determinative concept and yet appeals to concepts in general. We see this thing as something that we can cognize. It exemplifies a kind of cogn cognizability. And yet, it is not determinative cognition. It's not saying this is a that. It's luxuriating in the thisness of it, the, the, the possibilities of it. And that's why we can never say it all when we're trying to describe art. We're continually open to it meaning more and more and more, not being tied down to one concrete meaning. And I suggest, as we're going to talk about more in the next segment and then also in the next episode, that progressive rock uses form, extensional form, not just intentional form, but extensional form in the ways that we talked about it in the last segment, in order to inspire us to think more and more. Therefore, there's a kind of obscurity involved that I would prefer not to think of as obscurity because one of the things that, that prog rock does very well, I think, is it gives us this beautiful clarity of form that doesn't tie itself down to one meaning. It suggests. It's open to suggestiveness. It's open to possibility. Let's take a look at how prog rock then uses classical forms in order to do that. Progressive rock seems to have been particularly interested in issues of form, especially, but not exclusively, in what we've been discussing as extensional form. Edward McCann, in his book on the subject, 
rocking the classics, English progressive rock, and the counterculture, argues that progressive rock emerged from the countercultural scene in England, particularly in the Canterbury region. Specifically, the beginnings of the genre seem to evoke clear debts to psychedelia, which McCann strongly emphasizes, but also the folk revival of the 1960s. Indeed, many of the first albums by uh, some of the most renowned um, progressive rock bands, Jethro Tull, Genesis, have clear debts to folk rock. Psychedelia venerated an expansive approach to musical time and space, with its focus on extended improvisation, its willingness to, to rely on drones and other means of temporal expansion, and the encouragement it gave its audiences to focus more on listening rather than dancing, although not necessarily excluding dance altogether. The listening here was meant to be close listening, often in isolation with headphones or in the midst of a captive audience in performances. And the recordings reinforced this insistence on a kind of aural devotion. The panning and other stereo effects, the timbral shifts, the attention to relatively minute detail, the sometimes formidably dense textures, the obscure lyrics, all of this seemed to demand a different kind of listening, an engaged an active listening, a mindful listening, rather than a distracted listening or a listening that was subordinated to other social elements such as dance or conversation or what have you. The complexity of the lyrics and the inclusion of acoustic songs and sections of songs alongside an emphasis on pastoral themes, themes related to nature and the countryside, in certain progressive rock works stem from the folk revival. And, of course, the folk-oriented music of the 60s, particularly the work of figures such as Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen, also demanded close listening and careful attention to the details of the lyrics. Progressive rock quickly became a genre that delighted in the fusion of various musical genres and styles. Although perhaps most famous for the allusions to classical music, many progressive rock bands found their inspiration in jazz or various kinds of world music. The point of progressive rock in the broadest sense seemed to be to bring a kind of formal seriousness to rock, to explore greater compositional complexity in extensional form, but also, as we'll see, in intentional form. So you have the trekking element, but you also have the dwelling element, and we'll come back to that. In this sense, prog rock is decidedly middle-brow. It attempts to bring together elements of the high and low culture, the sophisticated and the everyday, and a music that retains the energy of rock and combines it with the high-mindedness of art. As McCann points out, the musicians and the audiences for prog rock were decidedly middle class, and of course the rise and prominence of prog rock coincided with the increased willingness on the part of major record labels to invest massive sums of money in albums. Albums, not just songs. It also coincided with the emergence of a rock criticism that sought to distinguish pop music from rock music. Uh, not that most prog rock found much genuine love or appreciation from the critics, particularly such famous writers as Lester Bangs or Robert uh, Christgau, both of whom felt that prog rock was all pretension and lacked the gritty authenticity they lauded in rock. We're going to talk about this more in the next episode. Now I'm going to repeat what I said a moment ago. It is not true that progressive rock bands all draw primarily upon classical music as a model or as material. This is true of certain bands, such as The Nice, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, Gentle Giant, particularly with respect to church music, and Renaissance, the band Renaissance. Other bands, and even some of the bands already mentioned, drew more inspiration from jazz and the avant-garde. I'm thinking here of King Crimson and the German band Canned, Can, but also Gentle Giant draws quite a bit on, on the avant-garde more than traditional classical music. Others are harder to pin down, such as Yes and Genesis. These bands clearly draw on harmonies more familiar to jazz, forms more familiar to classical music, and textures that range from folk music to avant-garde experimentalism. So prog rock is a hybrid genre and different bands will draw on different influences at different times. What is characteristic of almost any band regarded as prog rock, however, is a relatively expansive, and as we have said, extensional uh, approach to form. And that is what we're interested in here. In the next episode of this podcast, we'll continue to explore form in prog rock from the point of view of genius and aesthetic ideas. And so we'll, we'll look at Kant's ideas or his theories regarding aesthetic ideas and genius.
But for the remainder of this episode, despite our caveat just a moment ago that not all prog rock is concerned with classical music, we are going to look at a few examples in which a prog rock band, specifically Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, recreates, or more importantly, adapts a classical piece. The band most renowned, or lambasted, depending on your point of view, for this practice is, of course, as I just said, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, the English supergroup, formed in 1970 with Keith Emerson on keyboards, Greg Lake on vocals, bass, and guitar, and Carl Palmer on drums and percussion. Their self-titled debut album featured two hidden arrangements, so to speak, of classical pieces. I'm calling them hidden because, as we'll discuss in a moment, they weren't credited. The Barbarian is a reworking of the Bella Bartok piano piece, Allegro Barbaro, while Knife Edge adapts the first movement of Leo Janacek's Sinfonietta with lyrics. That song includes an instrumental middle section that uh, features an extended quotation of a Bach French suite. So you have borrowings from Janicek and Bach in the, in the same piece. Now, these are adaptations more than mere arrangements. Notice that the title of the first tune, The Barbarian, is derived from Bartok's title, Allegro Barbaro. But that's only obvious in retrospect. That's only obvious if you know the Bartok piece and you hear it within The Barbarian. The song, which is an instrumental, is not a note-by-note recreation of Bartok. Nor is it really a, a point-by-point uh, adaptation where, where each measure corresponds uh, to the Bartok. The opening motive employed, which is taken directly out of Bartok, actually sounds like something in this context from Black Sabbath or Iron Butterfly, more than we might think of as deriving from classical music. About a minute and a half into the song, however, Emerson switches to a more standard piano tone. He had been using a kind of rock organ sound up to that point, and, and Greg Lake had been playing a distorted bass. But now he switches to a standard piano tone, more or less, and Greg Lake uh, plays a, a clean tone on, on the bass. And then the Bartok seems to emerge, or rather it kind of reveals itself within the rock context. Now to me, this is a fascinating piece, although not necessarily their most famous reworking of classical music. We'll, we'll talk about that, those options more in a moment. But what fascinates me here, what fascinates me with The Barbarian, is the hidden aspect of it all. You don't at first hear this as classical music. I would say that's true even if you're quite familiar with the Bartok piece. Nothing stands out at first as not belonging to a rock vocabulary of the late 60s and early 70s. But then the piano tone emerges, and Emerson plays a more or less faithful, it's not really faithful, but more or less faithful rendition of part of the Bartok that soon evolves into a kind of variation on the original, a kind of solo improvisation around that original material. This then dives back into the distorted and raucous tones of the opening. In other words, ELP, Emerson, Lincoln, Palmer, they fashion a kind of ternary structure here, ABA, based more on timbral effects than musical material. The timbre here doesn't charm exactly, and thus, in Kant's terms, it doesn't distort the form, Rather, it focuses our attention on the contours of the form, so it brings us into form. Moreover, this is a kind of structure of revelation, which makes it far more interesting than a typical ABA ternary form, right? Typical ABA forms, uh, the, the sort of most prosaic ABA forms, are rather predictable. They're based really just on basic contrast. You have a more or less self-sufficient A section, and then you provide a B section that might be self-sufficient or it might be open, right? It might end on a, on a local tonic or it might end on the dominant to bring you back to the return of A. But the idea is that these are fairly strongly contrasting sections. They don't, one doesn't necessitate the other precisely, at least in, like I said, the most prosaic uh, ABA form. There's a sense in which both the A and the B are their own little worlds and you're sort of dwelling in them. Again, this idea of dwelling. And so the trekking is a really simple trek. It's a, a, a home, move away from home, and return to home. But that's not exactly what's going on in The Barbarian. Because throughout the piece, motives and chords are derived from Bartok. But that origin becomes more apparent in the middle section, 
based on that same material and yet more closely approximating the timbral and the motivic and, and harmonic world of Bartok. Supported, of course, as we said, by electric bass, now, now clean tone, and it still has the drums. So it's not Bartok exactly, but it's a closer approximation. So this isn't a mere rock arrangement of a classical tune. It's a rethinking of the Bartok through the logic of a rock band. But in that rethinking, there is a kind of trekking that goes on. There is a journey, but it's a journey inward. It's not from home in a way. It's almost from, from a self to a contemplation of what has influenced the self. I'm almost tempted to interpret it through Marcus Aurelius, right? And his, his writings in, in uh, his meditations, where he talks about, uh, in one of the opening uh, writings of that, one of the opening essays, he talks about thinking about himself and seeing these characteristics of other people within him, seeing the influences that others have had, so that his honesty, I don't remember exactly how it goes, but let's say his honesty derives from his father, his charity derives from a beloved uncle, that kind of thing. Acknowledging the debts one has to others. And we do that. Sometimes authentically, sometimes, sometimes in, in uh, ways that are, are explicit, and sometimes in ways that are implicit, sometimes in ways that we don't even recognize. We say things in a certain way that's uh, reminiscent of someone who's influenced us. Now, this is tricky with the barbarian because, of course, he is, Emerson is, borrowing material directly from, from Bartok, even though he does not credit Bartok uh, in the, in the uh, liner notes to the album. But at the same time, as I said, the A sections sound like they're more in a metal prog rock world. It's the middle section that reveals what underwrites that world. This is why Marcus Aurelius comes to mind, right? It's not that I look at Marcus Aurelius and I see directly his father or his uncle. I see his actions as being reminiscent of his father and uncle. I see him betraying, in a sense, or, or, or bringing uh, to fruition things that he adopted from his predecessors. In a sense, that's the logic of the barbarian, that this, the influence of Bartok reveals itself in that middle section and then becomes absorbed once again in the return of A. Now take note of this. First of all, if I just label something ABA, that sounds like perhaps one of the most boring formal designs imaginable, right? Just simple contrast. But what they've done is they've energized that ABA. They've taken these areas of dwelling and made them into a kind of journey, a kind of trekking. At the same time, because all of it is shot through with Bartok, there is a kind of dwelling on a set of musical ideas here. And so trekking and dwelling, the intentional, or, or rather the extensional and the intentional, become blurred in this piece in a way that I think is rather interesting. A similar effect and form can be found in Knife Edge, another song from their debut album. Even someone familiar with Janicek's Sinfonietta might not at first recognize that the main motive was borrowed for the opening of the song. I didn't at first, and I know Janicek's Sinfonietta fairly well. Indeed, something about its repetitive pattern feels more like rock music, perhaps, perhaps even in somewhat banal rock music, rather than an orchestral piece. Lake sets the motive to lyrics that loosely and cryptically allude to living in a precarious modern condition. Take this stanza, quote, Patient cues for the gallows, sing the praises of the hallowed. Our machines feed the furnace, if they take us they will burn us, end quote. The source of the sense of foreboding remains unstated, but the references to machines and the imminent death of, a sacrificial, of sacrificial humans convey the precarity of our mental state in modernity. All of this drones on, again, in a manner that reminds me at least of Iron Butterfly and other early metal groups. There is no overt indicator that this is borrowed music. And it is emphatically not mere quotation or reproduction or arrangements. It's a reworking. It's not, a, it's not even as close to, um, to, to the source material as was Barbarian to the Bartok. It's even further removed. This is a reworking, a transfiguring of found material. 
Indeed, ELP, they don't seem particularly interested in their audience actually registering any of this as borrowed material. As I said, uh, they don't credit Bartok or Yanacek, perhaps because they were both dead, perhaps because they figured the transformation trumped the borrowing. The band only added credits to these composers when their estates eventually sued them. But then you have the middle section, and the middle section's not like the Bartok piece. It's not revealing in a closer manner the source material. Rather, we go to different source material. And here, when the Bach um, French suite appears, it's very obvious that we've moved into a different stylistic register, that we've moved into a, something that is not as um, resonant with rock music as the Janacek was, even if we had somehow registered the Janacek. Something different happens here. We feel the quotation marks around this music. And again, that adds a formal element that I think is, is rather intriguing. Because there's one thing to do a cover. Let's say, like, like we'll talk about, actually, let's talk about it now. The, the most famous, perhaps, piece uh, that they do, classical piece that they adapt, is Hoedown uh, from, from um, Aaron Copland, right? From, from a ballet from Aaron Copland. And that piece they do with rock timbres and so on, but it's a much more faithful approach than any of the pieces we're describing. And so even though in one sense you can say, well, the whole piece is in quotation marks because they're doing a cover, I don't think we generally hear covers exactly in quotation marks because it's you're in character, in a sense, from beginning to end, Right? Think of any cover, I don't know, uh, Guns N' Roses uh, doing Bob Dylan, right? Um, knocking on Heaven's Door. From beginning to end, this is, the, this is Guns N' Roses playing the character, in a sense, of Bob Dylan. This is what Bob Dylan would sound like if he sang like Axl Rose and played guitar like Slash and so on, right? So it's not in quotation marks. We're not, we're not pretending we're hearing Bob Dylan. We're hearing Bob Dylan as lived through Guns N' Roses. But in this piece, when the Bach shows up in the middle of Knife Edge, we hear the quotation marks. Part of it has to do with the timbre, but part of it just has to do with the Baroque language being so far removed, unlike the Janicek, which they have transformed into being a rock language. The Baroque language of the French suite is pretty far removed from the rest of the sound world of the song. And so again, we can see it as an ABA structure, but now we have one section of that ABA very clearly in quotation marks. And when, something, when we put something in scare quotes, we're not really saying it. It's performative, in a sense, in a different way than, than the way, for instance, I'm, I'm, I'm performing when I speak on a regular basis. When I'm putting something in scare quotes, I'm saying it and not really saying it. And there's an element there that I think is playing out in this piece, right? That adds an element of complexity, again, to something that's very simple, an ABA ternary form. Another good example, I think, of their uh, approach to borrowing from classical music is, of course, their other borrowing from um, Copland. And they, they took this with permission, and that was the fanfare for the common man. And this is, one of their again, one of their more famous ones alongside Hoedown. So there are two borrowings from... Uh, from Copeland are, are among their most famous uh, releases and certainly their most famous adaptations. Copeland was even asked about this. First of all, he was asked for permission to, to have them do it, and he asked to hear it first, and he was very impressed with uh, how Emerson played the, the keyboard and that they really did just do the whole thing faithfully, measure by measure, except there's an, a middle section where Emerson... Um, more or less improvise. Well, he does. He improvises on the the extended um, E chord, basically, in the middle of the of the tune. Right. So he adds a kind of kind of bluesy rock uh, improvisation in the middle. And Copeland sort of joked that that he likes the three minutes that were written by him. He thinks that that part's really. He's not sure what they were up to in the middle. But what they were up to in the middle is precisely what makes it theirs in a way. What transforms it, even though they're being very faithful, there's still this infusion of rock into the whole thing, making it seem like it could have been a rock piece. So again, notice this is a different 
modality in a sense. If we think of these various modalities, right, that, that the Bartok piece is a way of showing that Bartok really could have been a certain kind of rock all along. And the, and the B section reveals uh, that, that underlying influence in the manner of, a, of, like I said, Marcus Aurelius. On the other hand, we have Knife Edge, where the middle section is clearly meant to be in quotation marks, almost scare quotes, like here's this alternative uh, place that we can, we can point to, but that's not really us, that we can do, we have mastery over it, but it's not really us, it's not absorbed into the rock texture. Now this is a third option with uh, Fan for, for a Common Man, where, uh, where what they're doing with the Copeland is they're being faithful to the Copeland and showing that with only a little bit of adaptation, it could have been rock all along. The same might be true for what is arguably their most ambitious project, which is uh, Pictures at an Exhibition, their, their uh, live album from the early 70s, where they re redo, uh, I don't even know how to put it, because it's a combination of things. On the one hand, they're doing fairly faithful renditions of parts of Mussorgsky's um, suite, right? Mussorgsky, of course, originally wrote the piece for piano. It was very famously orchestrated by Maurice Ravel, and they're sort of alluding to both of those, um, those instantiations of the piece. They do some movements more or less faithfully. Uh, they add lyrics here and there to, to some of the other movements. They add their own. There are two pieces that they add of their own. The, uh, to, uh, one is this sort of strange, uh, almost quasi-medieval song that Greg, Greg Lake wrote, right? And then the other is a kind of uh, expansion of, of a part of the, of the original Mussorgsky. And if you listen to the whole thing, it flirts, especially the end, flirts with a kind of bathos, with a kind of ridiculous, overweening uh, approach to, to grandiosity, right? They put lyrics to the very end of the Mozorski, the, the Gates of Kiev, and uh, the end of it uh, is, is something that has been made fun of pretty much since the time they released it, right? Greg Lake sing, sings in this rising voice, there's no end to my life, no beginning to my death, death is life. Now, if you just listen to that part of it, which is how I first heard it, it sounds ridiculous, laughable. I laughed at it. I still laugh at it sometimes. But when you hear the whole thing, you almost can't help but be absorbed in its earnestness. And I think this is telling. And that's what I want to leave us with today. Because we'll pick up on some of the, these elements uh, about pretentiousness, about the overweening, about the overblown in the next episode, which will also deal with uh, Prague rock. And in this case, with the Kantian notion of genius and the Kantian notion of the aesthetic idea. If you listen to the entire and it really is an impressive album. And keep in mind, it's live, right? So they're doing this uh, fairly athletic, virtuosic feed in front of, of, a, of an adoring audience. And if you listen to the whole thing, and you get to that end, and you hear Greg Lake's voice trying to soar along with that, that majestic ending of, of the Gates of Kiev, which brings back the promenade, the, this retur returning uh, uh, melody that, that uh, comes back throughout the Mussorgsky and therefore throughout their rendition as well. And you hear, you hear that there's no end to my life, no beginning to my death, death is life. You laugh a little, but at the same time, there's something about the earnestness. There's something about the seriousness with which they approach this that you almost have to forgive it. You almost ask yourself, what would it be like to take things so seriously and mean it and maybe be able to laugh at yourself? The famous story from Robert Fripp is, or no, it wasn't Robert Fripp, actually. It was David Gilmore, uh, is that, that what he liked about ELP is, and, and yes, is that they were, they were able to laugh at themselves. They would do these very serious things and yet not take themselves overly seriously. And yet there is an element here at this end of this, this suite of the, the pictures at an exhibition where it feels like they're taking themselves very seriously and you almost want to believe right along with them. If you've listened to it from beginning to end, you almost get swallowed up in the overwhelming sweep of the whole. There's something very impressive about it. And you don't want to, in a sense, puncture it by not believing, even if you can't quite bring yourself to believe. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Sound Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. For further information, please visit my website at chadwickjenkins.com or write me at cjenkinsmusicology at gmail.com. That's cjenkinsmusicology, all one word, at gmail.com. I hope to hear from you soon.